I'm Claire Edwards, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership, a series of conversations, insights, and inspirations with leaders who are real, raw, and authentic. Today, I'm bringing you a conversation about self-leadership, which I'm sure you would agree is the first pillar of leadership. How we show up when things are difficult, how we manage our emotions and our ability to pick ourselves up and keep moving forwards says everything about us as a leader. Today, I'm in conversation with Sheila Brennan, who, in my eyes, is the courageous leader. Sheila shares her story from her time with the police in the UK to a life-changing event a few years ago in Australia. In this episode, Sheila shares many golden nuggets for living a courageous life. Enjoy. Like other podcast guests, Sheila Brennan and I don't know each other. We met on LinkedIn when Sheila started liking and commenting on my posts, and I became curious about her journey, both career-wise and through life. So I invited Sheila to be in conversation with me for the podcast and under the banner of The Courageous Leader. Now, Sheila grew up in the UK, you'll hear that from ethnic Yorkshire accent, and had a 25-year career in the police force before moving to Australia in 2008, where she became a private investigator. Then Sheila experienced a life-changing event, which we'll explore later in the podcast. I'm really looking forward to Sheila's story unfolding and would encourage you not to read the show notes until after you've listened. Sheila? Welcome to Authentic Leadership. Well, good morning, Claire, and thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Sheila, listen, I've asked you to be part of the Authentic Leadership podcast under the banner of The Courageous Leader. And I'd like to start by going back to your career in, in the police in the UK and maybe share with me some examples of, you know, courage that you saw in others and ultimately how the experience of being in the police helped your own courage grow? Oh, yeah, and that takes me back now. I've been retired a, a few years. Um, I think joining at the age of 19, um, I felt, you know, grown up as you do at 19, but perhaps very naive. And a lot of people I, when I joined the police were older than me. And I was trying to, when you say think about being courageous, I think throughout all your career police officers are quite courageous because you never know what you're going to meet but I do remember one particular episode not long out of my probation when uh, I was called I was on foot beat as it was then in uniform I was called to a man reporting a man who uh, was in flames and oh, that was quite shocking I know and I was uh, I ran down this lane behind a farm yard and I was greeted with a man who was black, like a piece of burnt timber, probably, mm -hmm. to describe it, with his foot still on fire, and I oh. put his foot out. I know. I hope this isn't too shocking for your listeners, but it's just something that will probably lead into what I'm going to say about being courageous. And yeah, no, please carry on. To, yeah, talking to him and talking to him, and he said to me, you know, quite strangely, oh, my wife's going to kill me. And what he'd done is he had, it had transpired, he had financial issues, he'd sorted out all his finances, but he was in dire straits. I think he'd remortgaged. And the only way out, he felt, was to actually set himself on fire and kill himself. 
So um, on the way to hospital, he was still alive, but sadly he died before he got to hospital because his burns were so severe. And I could not stop crying. Mm. That's the first, other than my nan who died naturally, you know, in her 80s, that was the first person I'd seen die like yeah. that. And I could not get over it. And what I found strength from and courage from probably was my colleagues. Now, I'm not saying they made a joke of it, but they all went back and they all cooked up the breakfast as you would normally, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I couldn't eat, I couldn't do anything. And it quite affected me. And then as the weeks, the months went on and you went to other deaths and, and you tended to become more courageous because of that. And I said to people, how do you find the, not just the courage, but the professionalism and to deal with something without getting upset? And you say, you just learn to live with it. And it's very, yeah. very true. Because as I went into CID later in my career, you know, I dealt with a lot of horrific things. And I'm not saying it's sad, but you, you do just deal with it. You just put on that professional face and think, right, I'll get on with this. This is what I joined the police for, you know. But that always it sticks with me. Not how I dealt with it, but how could somebody feel that that was their only way out in life, you know. And I think that was very sad. And I, I suppose then, in early on in your career, um, I'm curious, you know, what sort of uh, training, support and counselling was available to you when you first started experiencing, you know, traumatic events? Mm, good question. Um, there's certainly a lot. I mean, I joined in na- 1982, so that's a, quite a few years ago. And what's available now is far more than was then and I'm sure we all as yourself Claire hear of police officers committing suicide certainly Mm. here in Australia PTSD from the police and and, and other similar forces Um, there was a force doctor you could go see if you felt traumatized or you felt you know somewhere affected by something but certainly the availability now is far greater Mm-hmm. Um, than it was which is such a bonus but I would say I probably found support through my colleagues and subsequently uh, when I met my, my husband some years later he was a huge support to me he's not a policeman but he 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 was marvelous you know and I could yeah. come home and blah, 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 you know debrief over a, a G&T or a cup of coffee whatever and then I feel it's out of my system but we mm. tended to support each other and talk to other colleagues. So there was a very good support network within your colleagues. And I, I think that's probably the same I'd like to think in business and other places I've worked and who I've worked with that, that you tend to lean off each other. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And, you know, um, the work that I do in, in resilience is a lot of it is around the foundation of resilience is building a support network and maintaining a support network because sometimes when things get too difficult we can we can withdraw you know and and that's the can be the rocky road to ruin so i encourage people to say you know if you if you notice yourself withdrawing because maybe you think people aren't going to be interested in in being with you because you're feeling down then really that's a red flag and and you've got to you've got to get back into into community and and just listening listening to your story there it sounds like that you put in a way strategies into place around boundaries and also around humor and i'm curious as to how 
did you use humor as a coping mechanism? <laughs> that, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. Oh, I've got, I can't, I've got to be politically correct to a, to a point, or do I? No, no, <laughs> no, Sheila, this is called authentic. It's real, raw and authentic. You don't need to be politically correct at all. Oh, have you ever seen, I don't know if you've ever seen Life on Mars? It's no. a TV program. I don't think it's currently on the TV. And it's about um, a detective inspector in, in Manchester, which is another northern force. Are they South York to Manchester? can't remember. Uh, no, to the um, side, Lan Lancashire. To the side. Lancashire, silly me. God, forgot already. And basically <laughs> something happens. He, he, he has an accident, bumps his head, and he goes back to the police as they were in the 60s, 70s. I forget ah. which it is. And it's quite hilarious actually because <laughs> you, you think back to when I joined I'm thinking oh my goodness where when I joined there were what you have now is certainly in England I'm not sure in Australia it's the Police and Criminal Evidence Act of 1984 which was introduced then but before then was called judges rules and you I, I could arrest somebody and uh, go off off shift at 10 o'clock at night and say oh Sarge I'll just come back and interview him in the morning when I come back on you know, there were no real oh, wow. rules around detention. It was bizarre. And, and there were no tape-recorded interviews. And you had an interview and you made notes. And then you made your pocketbook up afterwards and things like that. So the rules are very, very different. And now I'm doing what I'm doing. And I've actually forgot your question. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. <laughs> Humour. I think it's very common. I When I joined the police, and certainly when I joined the CID, I'd only got five years service so that was quite um, rare and it was quite rare for a woman at that point in the mm. uh, mid 80s to be in CID but it's something I, I, I really loved I loved criminal investigation and I knew that's where my career would turn me I found it very interesting so I'm a woman in a sea of men so um, the jokes the banter yeah banter at the time you either stuck with it or you were out. And I think that's fair comment, you know, and I'm not proud to say this and certainly the force and it's changed. But I remember when I was in my probation, which is like your first um, six months of probation and part of your initiation was I got thrown in a cell. I had my police tights pulled down and my backside stamped with a station stamp by a female, I have to say. And I, I got I got stuck in the cell for an hour, and then if you didn't shout and ball and came out and had a laugh about it, then you know you're one of them. And that's honestly how it was. Wow. So you think I know, and that now, and obviously in my later career, I worked in professional standards department, and now, well, that's indecent assault, nothing less than really. Mm. I've had I've had colleagues have had their ankles dangled out of the wind, you know, held held and dangled out of the window, and all sorts of things like that, really setups and all sorts of stuff. It's like, yeah, you know, welcome to the ship. And that's the way it was. And yes. Yeah. As as times changed, probably correctly, then things weren't acceptable. But we did get through it with humour, without a doubt. You know, we got through the sadness with humour. We got through the horrible things with humour. Yeah. Um, yes, it might have been near the knuckle, but that really helped because if you couldn't cope with the sad the bad you know the ugly yeah and you you couldn't do your job wow 
Yeah, what a great story. And and you didn't yes, I mean, that, did you? <laughs> no, I wasn't expecting that at all, which is why I love the I, I love these podcasts and the different flows that they take. And yeah, mm. looking, you know, looking back on that, you can see the intention behind it. It's like, you know, you're going to have tough times ahead. So if you mm. have to cope with this, you know, yeah. politically correct or not, then then you might struggle. So yeah, I can I get the the point of, of the initiation. I wonder what they do these days. <laughs> I'm sure nothing. It's very, yeah, yeah. Absolutely nothing. I remember reading, oh, not so many years ago, about a, a force in London who set allegedly set somebody up, a whole shift set a new probationer up, mm-hmm. and I'm sure it was London, and wherever they were armed, it was an armed unit, and a new guy came and they pretended that there was this burglary. He, w- he was on the first on the scene. And then they came in with faces covered, guns out, saying strip. They got into strip, uh, firearms out. And then it's like, oh, ha, ha, welcome to the team. Well, oh my gladly, goodness. this officer thought, I'm sorry, that's not on. And the yeah. whole team was sacked. The whole team was sacked. You know what I mean? Mm. There's talking about a little bit of fun over something so criminal aren't we so oh yeah gladly, and potentially that's traumatic. not acceptable and shouldn't be but when I moved into professional standards department later in my career some of the things I investigated uh, I, I did feel really oh come on get over it you know and I did feel a bit like that because you know if, if me and you Claire are talking and we are talking about something close to somebody else and they may get offended by what we're talking about then they can make a complaint yeah and that's yeah. how how near it is and and i accept in some situations you know things are acceptable so you've got to watch what you're saying but i, I know colleagues who are in different forces in england and wales and scotland now and i know that the, the, the job's not the same you know it's all come to work go home and you spend so much of your life at work that you need to have that not you know fun you need to have that light-heartedness yeah. somewhere yeah. in amongst your working day to get you through it and I think you know and that brings us on nicely in time I think for you that was you know it was a vocation to be to be part of the police and, and, and to be in CID. And then in 2008, you've made a family decision to, to up sticks and, and move to Australia. So, you know, it's a big change. How did that sort of impact your career decisions? Yeah, good question. When I met David, I was a uniform sergeant and then I became detective sergeant and then I went through the CID, da-da-da. And my last few years was as a detective inspector in professional standards, dealing with complaints against police. So just before we moved, I moved into that department, David and I came on holiday here when Patrick was uh, little, my son, who's 18 now, mm-hmm. um, say here over in Australia. David used to live here as a child himself and always wanted to move back. So we came as a bit of a holiday uh, when Patrick was about 18 months old and when we came back to England after the holiday David said you know do you think you can move out and I said no I think it's just too far (laughs) (laughs) but I think when I put it all into perspective my family were all in England I'd got a good career you know I would be going for the next rank for chief inspector you know that's where I could Ah. see myself going but then as my years of professional standards um, moved on, 
I was just getting burnt out. I mm. felt, you know, I, I just, I was 24 seven a lot of the time, you know, we we're on call and we used to get called out if any person, member of the public was in the custody of police and something happened. So whether that was a, a, a police chase, an injury in custody or anything, or injury upon arrest, anything like that. Yeah. So we used to have to get called out through the night. So I was getting really busy. Patrick was growing up and I was finding that, oh, I'm not really going to see much of this little boy that I want to see. And um, I said to David, you know, as, as for, for us, most decisions are made over a glass of wine one evening. <laughs> and I said to David, you know, I think we should look again at going to Australia. And he went, really? Really? You know, I went, yeah, I said, I, I don't think I can do my 30 years. I don't think I can keep going at this level and this yeah. pace without burning out, not being a family as we want to be. So that was really the root cause. And um, I, we, that's why we decided we'd, we'd come out here. And my husband has a business there, a fiber optic business. So he submitted the application for us state-sponsored business visa and we decided to come to Queensland mm -hmm. and yeah so I moved I decided I would do my 25 years so I did that and and retired you know the, the month that we moved out in uh, June 2008. And then what did you do? <laughs> well I was going to be as they say in Yorkshire a ladies what do lunch type of girl <laughs> and oh yeah and that was it. I, I would retire. I helped set David's business up. So for the first seven months or so, I was busy with David. And then I started walking and beautiful over here in Queensland. And I thought, no, I can't do. I'm mm. not a coffee morning every day sort of girl. And, you know, I've maybe grown into that in the last latter year. But I decided I needed to do something. So David said, well, why don't you just get a private investigator's license? And I said, oh, how on earth do I do that? You know, what skills have I got? I said, what skills have you got? Oh, you've got fantastic transferable skills. I know, but at the time, I thought, well, I've only been a police officer. He's like, yeah, wake up. So I, did, <laughs> I submitted what, I know it's funny, isn't it? You just think, you know, who's going to want me? And then I submitted what's called a recognition of prior learning. I didn't need to do the course, which was very basic. Um, so people can do a course and then, hello, here, I'm a private investigator, which I think like any job or thing in life, I believe life experience is, is, is crucial yes. to do any, any job nowadays. So that's what happened. I got my PI license and I sent a CV around and a company in Brisbane said oh would you like to come and do some subcontract work for us so that's what I started doing and we live on the Sunshine Coast so every now and then I'd go into Brisbane and I dealt with a lot of their corporate clients on a subcontract basis sometimes mm -hmm. working with colleagues from the firm sometimes given the job just to do with myself but I did a lot of bullying in the workplace similar okay. stuff to what I'd been doing in the police and then they decided that um with budgets, you know, um, as time went on, the, the jobs that we're getting were less and less from the corporate clients because corporates were trying to deal with their own in-house things. Mm. And I started doing, I did work for a company for a short time, but that wasn't flexible enough for Patrick's school. And then, uh, and then I just started doing insurance work latterly where, uh, fully enough for the same company, they were taking on some insurance work, things like 
burglary claims, stolen vehicles, motor vehicle yeah. accidents, you know, just helping insurance company investigate those um, impartially. So that worked well because I fit in with Patrick's school, you know, and I can do things, um, you know, any day of the week. So that, that's what I was doing latterly. So, so here you are, you've, you've moved over to the Sunshine Coast, you settled, you've got a new career going. And then in 2013, you experienced, I think, what can only be called a life-changing event. Can you share with our listeners what, what happened then? Yes, I'd love to. And this wasn't in the plan. <laughs> and, no, it yeah, certainly fit, wasn't. I know. I was probably the fittest I'd ever been. I was still doing a lot of walking. Been out the night before with some friends at their house. And the following day, the last day of the school holidays, uh, Easter, Patrick and I were tidying up the garden at the house we were living at then. David, by this point, had actually gone to work away on the pipeline using his skills there because work on the coast was a bit short. Mm. So he had a four job, fly in, fly out job, which was fine. So I thought, right, I will mow the grass. I never mowed the grass and I've never mowed it since, but I'll mow the grass, we'll do some gardening, ready for David coming home so he doesn't have to do it. Looking forward to him coming home. Mm -hmm. And it was a hot day. I drunk what I thought was enough. I'd eaten what I thought was enough. And Patrick, after a couple of hours, went inside because it was hot and he was only 11. I mean, mm. I did well to get two hours out of him. And then I remember speaking to David and how does this strimmer work? And he went, oh, forget that, Sheila, it sounds too hot. Anyway, I decided, you know, I better go inside. I really felt hot then. I'll get a drink of water. So I shouted to Patrick to get a drink of water. Mate, come and get me a drink of water. I just feel a bit hot. I suddenly felt very nauseous. I felt dizzy. I thought I was going to pass out or be sick, you know, that sort of feeling. Mm -hmm. And just thought I was a bit dehydrated. I put my head into the toilet, as one does, to think I'm really going to be sick. Yeah. And that's the last thing I remember. I knelt down on the floor, head into the toilet, last thing I remember. And when I came round, which I believe was only a few minutes later, Patrick was evidently, I don't remember this, stood in front of me with a glass of water. I was slumped on the floor. I couldn't get off the floor. The whole of my right side wouldn't move. It was totally numb. And I tried to, my mouth moved, but no words came and I couldn't speak. Oh I initially thought, I know, I initially thought I'd fainted. It's now I can tell that story without crying. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it still brings back the look on Patrick's face that I'll have with me. Now I'm crying. <laughs> it's funny isn't it after all these years no it's human you know he looked so and then I came around I remember you know I remember him with the water and then I remember his face looking so scared and typical control freak I am evidently I was trying to with my left hand do some I think I was trying to put words on the floor for him what to do I don't know he didn't automatically ring the ambulance mm. so I just thought I'd fainted I really just thought I'd fainted but because I couldn't speak and because I couldn't move I thought oh god I wonder if I've had a stroke but I couldn't tell that to Patrick yes my mum my had a stroke when she was 50 but 
it was a much more serious stroke. But I was aware of some of the signs and I, all I could think of, oh my God, I don't want to be like my mum, you know? And mm. anyway, in summary, my friend called um, quite unexpectedly, came up the drive and Patrick said, quick, quick, this is related to me. Something's happened to mum, I don't know what's happened. And between them, and my friend actually came over for a visit the other day from New Zealand and we were laughing about it because we can now. And neither that human, yeah, yeah, remember the emergency number because Patrick thought it was still 999, which Ah. is Britain, and Erin's was triple one, I think New Zealand's triple one. And they were thinking, well, is it 911 or what is it, you know? So at the time, they were saying, well, I don't know what it is, and they they clearly found out what it was, you know, when they'd you know got over there. What's the number and phone the ambulance and the ambulance came mm-hmm. and I was stretched into the ambulance and I remember my friend Erin uh, ringing David. I remember her being on the phone and then saying, "Look, just be aware that a mum had a stroke." And they were talking to me about stroke. I'm thinking, "Oh God, no, it can't be a stroke." And all I could think of was, "I don't want to be like my mum because my mum's still permanently disabled now from yes, she's 30, 33 years ago." So yeah, so I'd suffered a stroke, you know. Wow. Fit as a fiddle, eating healthily, couldn't be fitter. Just that day, having done too much in the sun, um, putting my head down. And what happened was, subsequent, obviously went to hospital, had the scans, and blood had burst through what's called your bacilla artery Mm -hmm. in the back back of my neck, and then gone into my brain. Believed it had clotted at some point, and then just dispersed. So from it... From an, I suppose from a level of, you know, mild to very serious stroke, I had a milder stroke. But I can tell you, anybody who has a stroke, it's life-changing no matter what it is. Oh, it but must I'm be. Lucky, I'm, yeah, and I'm luckier than most. So, yeah, so that's what happened to me. And that's six and a half years ago now. Gosh. Yeah. And, and something well, unusual happened, didn't it, when you regained your speech? It did. Uh, a bit too soon, my husband always said. I talked too soon. After <laughs> he thought, you know, can you not do anything about that? <laughs> so, a, as you know already, from our, just a couple of conversations, I'm a bit of a chatterbox. And, yeah, it did. Within probably days, really, although I didn't initially pen st- stuff for a few weeks, but my brain would only work in rhyme. So Gosh. they do say, I know, the, I've, I've read a lot of books since then about the brain and the brain is ever changing. And I'm fascinated uh, and we'll come on to my stroke work, I'm sure, but I'm fascinated how the brain can change itself. And what I really like is an analogy that a social worker of mine at the time gave me is that the brain's full of cabinets. And when you have a stroke, sometimes, depending on the severity, all the cabinets change, all the cabinets close. And she mm. said, over time, with therapy, repetition is a thing, that the cabinets will start to open. She said, but sometimes some cabinets will never open again. You know, like my maths cabinet, I'm, I can't count. Okay. Uh, and other little things. So, but she said, what you need to do is embrace the cabinets that have never ever opened and are now wide open. So what a wonderful analogy. I know it is, isn't it? Embrace the cabinets that have never ever opened and are now wide open. Yep. 
so that was my poetry. So if you call it poetry, for the English viewers who know Pam Ayres, it's very like Pam Ayres because it wasn't necessarily poetry at first. Just everything had to rhyme. So, oh, David. David used to giggle a bit like, you know, I can't get out of bed. You know, there's a pain in my head. You know, something as yeah. simple as that. But my very one of the very first poems I wrote was to the Stroke Foundation. And it was about the day of my stroke. And this rhyming was actually at first quite frustrating because I couldn't get to sleep. I'd be in the middle of the night and I'd wake up suddenly with, I need to write this down. And I remember penning a poem about my stroke. It, what, it's now, um, what me, I'm only 49. Not me, mm -hmm. I'm only 49. And I sent it to a lady who would already contact me at the Stroke Foundation and and I said, oh, look, just thought in your mail this morning, you know, this is what I had in my head. You know, it sort of explains the day of my stroke quite well. Yeah. And uh, she went, oh, my goodness, Jill, that's fantastic. Can we put it in one of the Stroke Foundation newsletters? And, and then I started sharing poetry on Facebook, on some of the Facebook groups that I've been introduced to. There's lots of Facebook support groups around for stroke and people said, oh, that's great because that's how I feel and that's what I feel about today or yeah. I feel this, with, you know, but I can't explain it. But the way, I'm, a, I'm not going to explain it very well in the podcast, I'm a, but how I portray my feelings within the poetry, because all the poems I wrote were about the things that had happened to me or how I was feeling. Others were giving to the husbands, the loved ones, the colleagues, and just helping them understand. Um, because subsequently I got post-stroke depression and I couldn't get out of bed. And then I wrote some, what I call darker poems. Some yeah. I don't really remember writing. There's mm -hmm. sadness in them, but it's important to experience the sadness to then appreciate then where you're at now. And others couldn't tell people about the sadness, but they felt confident upon reading my poems that, that's okay. Sheila's felt like yes. that. And yeah. now look at what Sheila's doing. That's good. That means yeah. maybe I could do that. Or if I tell my husband, he'll understand how I feel. So it really made me uh, move forward with my poetry without a doubt. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'll, I'll make sure that we put a link to your, to your poetry on, on the show notes. And oh, thanks. one of the, yeah. So, I mean, it would have been really easy for you just to, Basically, retire from life, become one of those ladies, what does lunch? <laughs> but you didn't. You got involved with the Stroke Foundation, didn't you? Tell us more about that. I did. And it wasn't at first. Um, like I said, you know, within three months of my stroke, you know, I'm very much, nothing's beating me. Sorry, I clapped my hands then. Nothing's <laughs> beating me. You know, I flew to England to see my nephew get married in, in the June. And my physician said, look, the, the detriment of you getting depression from not going could could be worse you know okay. if you don't see it as an important family event I was 50 I had a party you know and I think it was after that after all the celebrations had gone we got our citizenship in that time mm -hmm. suddenly I was faced with okay this is me what can I do my brain was a bit of a scramble I, could, I wasn't sharp enough to return to the work that I'd done and you need to be sharp to be an investigator. There's lots of analytical work in, in the information you give and interview planning and my brain just just couldn't take that much information. You know, it was bad enough getting up to think, right, well, what, what do I make for dinner? 
what do I need yeah. in the shops? You know, so was some, some of your cabinet things. doors were still a bit squeaky. Oh, very squeaky. <laughs> you know, I had to, you know, one of my poems I wrote was about making muffins, about how I put the wrong ingredients in, you know. And it's, it's that sort of um, simple things, simple tasks that I couldn't do when I yeah. couldn't do more than one a day. And I just thought, and yeah, that's why I got depression and many do and that's okay. But I didn't, it's sad when I say this and obviously it's sad when I told David and Patrick this, but I said, I need a purpose in my life. And David said to me, well, you're a wife, you're a mum. That's, that's big. I said, but it's not enough. And to tell your family, it's mm. not enough being a mum and a wife, but it wasn't, I, I, know, I knew that I needed something, call it your passion, call it whatever. I needed something for me, something that I felt I could contribute, contribute and make a good job. I was a blooming good investigator. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't do that, but I couldn't move past that. So I cried it out thinking I was never going to be. And eventually my sister took me to the doctors. I got some medication and it made me flat and then made me a bit better. And then I started exercising. It was my beautiful trainer, Melinda, who said, just focus on what you can do. You're writing your poetry. You're exercising, you know, carry on climbing some mountains and cycling and keep writing your poetry. You should maybe publish a book. I went, oh, yeah, whatever. And it's like, that's really what then moved me forward. But yeah. following that, the Stroke Foundation were um, contacting me because of the poetry and other things. And I thought, you know, maybe I could do some voluntary work with them. And that's what happened. Because I'm good at speaking or confident at speaking, yeah. uh, I became a Stroke Safe ambassador. So I decided clearly to turn the bad into the good and um, that involved speaking at either big corporate conferences or with sponsors of the Stroke Foundation or speaking at your 10, 15 strong women's knitting circles locally on the coast yeah. um, and teaching people how to be stroke safe. Anything because to get your message things, out there. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Two messages really. One that it can happen to anybody at any age, any time and people mm -hmm when they see me and see me physically now i'm 56 can't believe the first thing they say is well you're so young to have one and you're not yes. you're not at 49 you know you can have a babies can have strokes in utero yeah you know it's that common but also to show that yeah i did have a life-changing event and as much as i can be a leader in with the stroke foundation a leader on the coast here in stroke i can also be a promoter of of your, your life really and say no matter what you have in your life if you're physically able you can get better because the support there for you in so many shapes and forms the thing you have to do is just reach out for it and find it such a good message Sheila and you know yeah. what you're saying it, it it holds true for all of us in terms of don't focus on what you can't do focus on what you can do and and i'm curious is that you know with all your experience from from the police and the cid and and you know witnessing trauma was there anything that you drew upon from your career to help you build the courage to move forward after your stroke 
Um, I think it, it's going back to the very first question that you asked about the man who set himself on fire. Uh -huh. I thought at the time, I never thought, how could he be in that headspace to be so sad to, to, to think that something so bad it has to take his own life? I thought, how I can't ever imagine being in that space. And then being in that space myself where I don't think I ever consciously wanted to do away with my life I didn't like the life I had and I wrote about it but I don't remember thinking of ways to take my own life then hearing people who have taken their own life makes me so sad and mm. I'm involved with stories of hope on the coast which is you know Kerry's a counsellor and she does a lot of suicide prevention and it's so prevalent at the moment yes and I think going from that to experiencing, they know you can actually say to people, I know how you feel. I really know how you feel. Mm. So I think people say, well, you've never been through this or you've never been through that. And having, having been in those dark places and then, you know, coming back around and don't get me wrong, you know, I do like to give a positive outlook constantly but you know we all still have off days where you know I'm too fatigued because I do too much but I just think leaning on you know my skills as a police officer and being able to talk to people yeah and as much as I'm a chatterbox being able to listen I think yeah. that's half the battle being I can't help everybody I can't help the world and I've soon come to learn that because to my own detriment because I can't help even all of my friends who are going through the bad times because I haven't got the cognitive capacity to take it all. Yeah. And maybe I do, I do take a step back a little sometimes because it blows me away and, and I get very fatigued. And since I've lessened my work with the Stroke Foundation since, you know, the last month or so, I, I, doing things like this is great because I can still get the message out without me physically going out, standing, preparing, you know, and that tires me out the most. My yeah. brain tires me out. And I've, I've realized this by stepping back these last couple of months physically. I'm, I'm, I'm great. But mentally, my brain is still tired and yeah. I can't do too much. And that was the hardest thing, perhaps giving up what I love to do but I know I have to look after my health because if I don't I'm not there for me or my family so you have to put priorities in but certainly being a leader I think throughout my career and being a leader in stroke I can still be a leader without physically standing up there and talking to people I think that's where I feel in, in other ways you know finding you you finding me on LinkedIn and keeping my Facebook page going and doing things in the background with the Stroke Foundation is still really important. As, it's as it's critical. And, and, you know, and the first principle of leadership is self-leadership. And mm. it's good to hear that you, you know, you didn't go from one situation to another where you could have just completely burned out in the work that you were doing for the Stroke Foundation, that you've acknowledged mm. that self-care is, is mm. essential too. And I love being asked to speak about me and my life story as a motivational speaker and launching myself for such a couple of years ago is great. But in all honesty, I haven't got the brain space to, hmm. to market, market myself enough. And that's okay because then, you know, the commitments come in and, and I just, 
as much as that's what I love to do, I really do. I have to each day think, no, Sheila, you know, you yeah. can't do that. Yeah. Think about a, a pocket of your life that you've now done and and what you've given and you can still give in other ways yeah. i still do lots of other volunteering work for, for other things and i feel that you know people still ring me now from years ago people mm-hmm. still know that i've got a passion and a knowledge of stroke and it's the knowledge base that's good as well yeah and yeah i, I feel you're right in what you say claire that you cannot be good for others unless you're healthy and good yourself yeah you just can't and you know and and the whole cognitive capacity is on a is on a continuum and and stroke or no stroke it's important for us to know when we're cognitively struggling and burnt out and i think that that's we've still got a way to go in that in in my own experience of working with leaders who just push through and push through and push through and then um, you know, end up with a quality of life that's been extremely um, constricted or compromised. Mm. Oh, Sheila, it's so good talking to you. I, 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 we're probably coming up shortly to our time, and I just wondered if you know if there were one or two messages that you could get out there to other people who, like you, have had some form of brain-related injury that that they might be in that dark place or or struggling with their motivation, what's, what's, what's a message that you'd have for them? Um, I say this quite often, but just to put it into context, a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine, actually has Lyme disease. And she, she's absolutely amazing. But, you know, going back a few years ago, she, she was, you know, unable to get out of bed through the pain and the illness. And she's, she's just helped herself really because it's not recognized i don't know if you know here Um, yeah i was just wondering actually for those listeners who are outside of australia if we can give them just a a a quick description of what lyme disease is is it mosquito borne yes and and it basically just attacks your autoimmune system it can be and and this is my knowledge of it so if there's anybody listening and i've got this wrong i apologize but this is my knowledge from remembering what my friend has said mm-hmm. and basically you know it can um present itself in your body by other things for instance like arthritis you can have severe arthritis but it can just be then diagnosed as arthritis but my friend said at one point, you know, she could not move her body and she felt this incessant itching inside, you know, mm. like the skin was just on fire. And to see her now, you know, she's a beautiful friend. I've only known her a couple of years through stories of hope. But she, she said to me the other day, she said, people post a lot about, and I'm, and I'm, I'm carrying on a bit longer than expected, but she said, no, 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 um, no, please, ah, please. We yeah. want to hear you. You're a fabulous yeah. storyteller. Please take Thank all you. the time you want to share your oh. story. I post a lot about being positive, focusing on what you can do. Go out there every day, be happy. Just do something that makes you happy. And she said to me, it's okay saying that, she said, but I've got a friend now who's really struggling with lives and she cannot get out of bed. She's desperate mm. to get out of bed, but she can't physically get out of bed. And sometimes, and it's not through my intention, but I have to remember that I all my limbs work and yes. I can climb, I can run. I've done a run this morning, as you know, with my friend. Mm. And I believe that when I say this, I believe, that even even if you're ill, I appreciate that. 
seek seek support from somebody who can help you get to that stage so and i'm not meaning if you if you're tied to your bed if you're genuinely ill and you can't move you know yes go out and sit in time with nature because i believe nature for me is very grounding whether yeah. it's going for a sit a walk in the forest or a swim in the ocean i i love both but for me it's seeking support first and foremost because you're not the only person who's ever been there and you cannot, cannot do it alone. No, mm. ma no matter what you think, there's people there, but you have to be the one to reach out. And I don't necessarily mean medical. You know, there's many holistic ways of dealing with things and friends, family, yeah. support net networks. So reaching out for support first and foremost. Mm -hmm. uh, we mentioned it earlier, focusing on what you can do. Yes, you might not be able to use your legs, but maybe you can use your arms. You can mm. do something. And I've talked to people who are severely disabled and they still get, they still understand where I'm coming from. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And, and, you know, just move on. At some point you have to accept that your old life, as I call it, you're not going to get back to that as much as you want to. And until you make that transition from accepting and it's a grieving process. It's like you've lost the person you were. You've lost yes. the brain, the physical person you were, whichever. And that's hard. And that takes people many a long time, some people never. But until you get through that grieving process, you're never going to be able to move on, excuse me, mm. with the next stage of your life. And I believe certainly just be happy with what you've got. I believe we're all striving for better things, the bigger house, the bigger car, you know, let's do this, let's work every hour we want and then, you know, in retirement this, in retirement that and hopefully next year or the year after my husband and I are selling up and we're going travelling once Patrick's in university because I've lost too many colleagues this last year from the police force who've retired 55, 56, within a year they've just dropped dead, heart yeah. attack, gone. Yeah. And I believe, do it now, don't wait. If you can Absolutely. do it, do it. And my son, gladly, is beautiful. And he said, look, mum and dad, I'll be in uni. You just do what you want to do. You know, he's very laid back. Mm -hmm. But we have to look after ourselves because we only get one line. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's a, just listening to you there is we don't want a stroke or a heart attack or you know, a, an onset of diabetes to help us get that perspective in life. And I think one of the, one of the other aspects that, that we haven't talked about, but you've shown in your conversation is around gratitude, about being present and, and looking at, at what you have got and being grateful for that. And I believe um, I, I've done challenges over the years. And one year, I every day posted... For 365 days, a photograph and something I was grateful for in my mm. day. Sometimes we have those days where it's like, oh, I've got to look hard. But you know, and, and I'm involved with something called Roses, the, the people on, who live on the street and, and are really don't have much in their life. And I'm involved in a sandwich rotor, I help out at some events. and. Sometimes simply having a roof over our head or food on the table, we take for granted, yeah. you know, yeah. and coming up to Christmas, you know, I was talking to friends the other day and they said, no, my child are getting, they're getting three presents. You know, we, we, 
we're too commercial, I yeah. think, you know, and, and I think it's not about gifts and that, you know, it's about pre- presence. And with a C. <laughs> yeah, with a C. And I believe, and this year, myself, my sister and others have decided, forget presence, let's just meet up more, let's go to the beach yeah. more. Or let's have our time because that in itself is, is worth a million bucks, isn't it? Oh, um, what a what a wonderful message to to round our conversation on. Um, particularly, you know, we're, we're in December. I'm hoping to publish this podcast this month, and uh, I think it's a very timely reminder to us all, Sheila. To me, you're an inspiration and one of the most courageous women I've never met. <laughs> and I hope to change that. I'll be coming up to the Sunshine Coast at Christmas and uh, let's go oh, and have a cuppa. Sure, I would love to. And I know that it's, it's not publicity on here at all and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that as well. But if anybody wants any more information about stroke and feeling, well, you know, the signs of stroke, which yep. I promote and and really getting your blood pressure checked and all the things to prevent a stroke happening, um, then please, you know, we can prevent 80% of strokes just by life changes. So wow. it's so important. Um, Where do so, people and have to for that? Right, well, the Stroke Foundation, so www.strokefoundation.org.au, yeah. um, they have all the information. Obviously, my, my web website's probably on the end of this or my email or I don't know what yeah I'll make sure are you okay that yeah. if people connect with you on LinkedIn that I can put your LinkedIn for sure details? I'd love that too I'd love that too yeah yeah because I'm still on there you know and I'm still connecting and posting and you know again how we how we found it mm. that's so lovely because I would have thought initially we were worlds apart but we're not and not people at in all. business aren't you yeah. know I was that person and I'm not now so, yeah okay. sheila thank you so much go well stay well thank you thanks claire